Hello, and welcome to the She's Heard podcast. My name is Emily Jennings, and you found the place where extraordinary everyday people from different professions and walks of life share about how they found their voice and are using it to speak up and create meaningful change. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sapna Doshi, who is a professor at the School of Geography and Development at the University of Arizona. She teaches and researches about the oppressive social, cultural, and political systems of global capitalism and the possibilities for liberatory social transformation. Hell yes to liberatory social transformation. Dr. Doshi is a daughter of immigrants from India. She grew up feeling like an outsider, never really fitting into any single culture, social group, or gender role. Conversely, she also feels most at home at the borders of different cultures, languages, identities, desires, and modes of being. She's lived and worked in India, Brazil, the U.S., Nepal, and she speaks many languages. She is married to another woman of color of immigrant descent, who she has been practicing and growing in love with for 15 years. While Dr. Doshi does not have children, she sometimes feels that her students serve that role for her. In this episode, Dr. Sapna Doshi talks about how if there are fascist capitalist forces in the world, there are also many fascist regimes within our own mind and bodies that work to oppress the self and others at every moment. I am a cisgender heterosexual white woman, and during this conversation, I was especially struck by the way Dr. Doshi sets herself and her classroom up to discuss these deep and difficult topics. In this episode, she shares how she is able to talk about white supremacy, global capitalism, and imperialism without collapsing under the weight of them. She shares her embodiment practices and encourages us to use our unique skills and focus on what's directly in front of us. I find it liberating and inspiring how simply her existence in the institution of marriage as a queer woman of color is transforming it. How the marriage process for her and her partner was a way for her to assert all of herself to her community and family while renegotiating what partnership and family mean to her. And her sharing about how heterosexism and patriarchy oppress her, I was able to recognize ways in which I'm oppressed by it as well. And her recent experience in achieving tenure was a glimpse into an elite, privileged academic group and process most don't get access to or experience. So without further ado, here's our conversation. You were talking about tenure and how, and explaining that it should, theoretically, the idea for tenure is that it gives you more freedom to unapologetically research and express yourself Right. Be honest. Yes. Without the the oppression, I guess, of needing to please the powers that be in order to keep your job. So the idea is that tenure actually is supposed to give you more freedom. More freedom. Yes. Exactly. Building up to it, it doesn't. No, it's the opposite of freedom. (laughs) It's the opposite of feeling like you can be fully expressed. So, so I definitely feel that this moment, as I've kind of gone through the tenure process, is one where I can be more expressed. That's exactly, you know, what what you were saying. The idea is professors, academics, thinkers are here to speak the truth at its most lofty kind of in its most lofty ideals. That's what that's what academia, that's what being an intellectual, that's what being a professor in a university is all about. And so your job, the idea is your job really shouldn't have to depend on you 
saying the truth that other people want to hear and not the truth that you really are, have found in your research and have found in, your, in the work that you do. And so tenure is meant to protect that, protect, protect you from losing your job. So it's kind of the only job that's out there that once you, once you pass through the hoops, you ideally, I mean, there are circumstance, certain circumstances where, where this isn't the case, but ideally you have your job for life. They can't fire you. And so, so yeah, so, you know, you say something and somebody doesn't like it. Perhaps there are professors that will talk about corporations or they will talk about injustice. And if people don't like it and there are people out there that don't like it, your job could be threatened. And so the idea is that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. And that's the case for any number of different fields as well within the sciences or anything. But the whole process leading up to it is a process where you are made to prove yourself. Are you worthy of this privilege of being part of this elite group, <laughs> right? And as you've already sort of alluded to, right, proving yourself, being a part of this group is so wrapped up in so many problematic things. Who gets to be considered, you know, smart enough, good enough? How do you prove yourself? In what venues, what languages are considered rigorous languages to be speaking in? What topics? Who are you in conversation with? Are there particular, you know, when you, when you write a paper, you have to be engaged with particular theorists. And who are those theorists who are considered, you know, rigorous? Who are those other scholars, right? And it becomes, it becomes evident all of the different kinds of oppressive power relations that come into the process at, at every level. And so for, for me, this was, this was an experience, you know, that, that really started in graduate school of being disciplined, I guess you could say. There's the discipline in which I was, I, you know, my discipline is geography, human geography. It's a very, I chose it because it's a very broad holistic kind of discipline. It's not looking at the world in a very narrow way. I had studied economics because I was interested in social injustice. So I was like, oh, economics, there's poverty. We need to understand the, the numbers behind it. That's how I started in undergrad. And then I realized that is such a narrow way to think about why the world is the way that it is. There's, there's gender, there's race, there's imperialism, colonialism, all of these things, right? And class, um, right? And, exactly. Class, there's some generational wealth, capitalism. Exactly. Wealth. All these yeah. systems and how they're and how they become embodied in particular bodies based on class, gender, race, nationality, etc. So in going into this field to unpack that, I also have experienced all of the ramifications of the institutionalization of these these processes of exclusion mm -hmm. and inequality in happening within the academy as well. So mm. through the process of proving myself, doing my PhD, proving myself, doing it, getting through tenure, uh, it reveals how entrenched all of these systems really are. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on making it through. Thank you. <laughs> That's an accomplishment. Thank you. And I'm excited to see what you will illuminate, <laughs> what you will study, what you will talk about, what you will teach. I'm yeah. excited to hear more about that. And, yeah. and I'm curious, what do you do to, or what have you done 
to stay sane through the process. What like self-care is such a key thing. And it's not just like, there's a superficial levels of it of massage and bath and the spa and yeah. those kinds of things. But there's like the deeper soul level. Yeah. Like guard your heart, but not so much that you are confined, but protect yourself. How do you do you, I know you've, we've talked a little bit in the past about some of your practices, but I'm curious um, what do you do to like, to practice a deeper level of self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the definitions of trauma is being completely disconnected from your body. You become dissociated with yourself, you know, and when we think about trauma and bringing up trauma, it's this very extreme kind of thing. People associate it with extreme violence, uh, sexual violence, etc. But if you think about it, we're all living in a state of trauma in one way or another, and it's a matter of degree and form, and it may it's not be recognized. So it's a kind of complete, yeah. yeah, it's a spectrum, and there are different kinds of it, but it's a kind of real disconnect, dissociation, disconnection from your body. Yeah. And so for me, academia is so much of a neck up kind of thing. And I've never really been just a neck up kind of person. <laughs> I'm a thinker and I like to think and I like to ask questions. And, you know, I think that we have our minds for a reason, but there's a way in which trauma and oppression happen when we are in the world of ideas and mind and we're not connected to our, our material bodies. What's, what's going on deep inside at the biochemical level, at the sensational level, our breath, all of these things. So for me, really having embodied practices like body-based meditation, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've practiced for almost 20 years now, Vipassana meditation, which is all about attention to the breath, attention to the sensations of the body, you know, being present in your, in your body without, without judgment, without sort of, obviously we can't cut out, you know, what goes on in our minds and that's not the goal really, but it's really being present to what our experience is. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's, that's been absolutely essential, a survival strategy. I also practice conscious movement. It's another kind of embodied practice linked to dance. There are different traditions of it. Um, there's five rhythms. That's the, you know, open floor, different traditions of conscious movement that use dance and, and sort of being present in your body through moving with music. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that our body can tell us that our minds can't. For sure. You know? And it knows way before your mind does or your mind like overrides it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So for me, I don't think I could have gotten through this process without it. And then obviously all of these other things like, you know, a massage and self-care. And there's a way in which doing some self-care though can get almost obsessive also, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you could get, oh, I need my massage. Oh, I need to do my yoga. Oh, and if I don't, what's going to happen to me? And it's not to say that these things aren't, aren't good for you, but I think just being present and whatever it takes, whatever modality it is, to really be present to, to what your experience is. And, and that way you can operate out of a place of choice as opposed to out of a place of reaction. Right. Yeah. yeah everything in moderation and even moderation in the moderation, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. absolutely. I've seen the obsession with health become yeah. so unhealthy. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> um, 
Well, that's, that's powerful. And by embodiment, it's from what I understand, and I'm curious what kind of your understanding is of embodiment. It's like Mm -hmm. not just a cerebral understanding of Mm -hmm. a concept or an idea. It's Mm -hmm. like you can actually feel it and be it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Being it and really being present to your experience in your body, what it feels like in this moment to be in your body. And be okay with whatever that experience is. You know, not that we don't do things to improve our experience, to make ourselves feel better, but sometimes we can do that without really accepting what our experience is. And then we're never really going to, then we're just sort of peppering over, right? And trying to fix things as opposed to, okay, this is really what I'm experiencing right now in my body and accepting it. And then yeah. taking it from there. Feelings are so important. Yeah. And because there's truth in it and it's also not the whole picture but they the feelings they live in your body you like them in different parts of your body and then you have patterns of that i think it's also a spectrum of how much attention you give to your feelings in terms of like you got to keep it real otherwise it's like if you're enraged and you're trying to be positive oh my god it's like having a steaming pile of shit and putting whipped cream on it right? Like it's like, it doesn't work. But then at the same time, you don't want to spin out in in the rage and get lost in the rage, but it needs to be witnessed. Yes, exactly. As well. And I think we're in a culture that really values, you know, it values formal education over life experience, plain and simple. And we see that across the boards. And so you, that's where you get all cerebral and lose the respect of life experience. You you lose the respect of the wisdom of feelings in the body. It's a both and, you know? Yeah. It's yes, like the absolutely. mind, when it's in service to the heart, is so mm. powerful. Yeah. But when we reverse that, man, we get things like we're seeing yeah. today, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's this dichotomy that we've set up, right, of the, of the mind versus the heart or the mind versus the body. And I think that the body and our reactions, our feelings, the sensations, you know, we come across something that we don't like. Something happens in our life that we don't like. Something that we really, I don't know, some very mundane thing. Your favorite vase just broke, mm-hmm. you know, and it's your favorite vase that broke. And so you feel very upset by that. If it was somebody else's favorite vase that bo- broke, even if it looked exactly the same, it's not going to make you feel all of these sensations, right? So there's something there that just because you have sensations doesn't mean that you're having these feelings, it doesn't necessarily mean like that there's some big truth in that, but that there's something to be experienced there. We don't need to suppress it, mm-hmm. right? It's just, okay, what is it? Wow, that's, that's information. <laughs> that's information about how I'm reacting to something. Mm-hmm. Somebody says something racist or sexist to me. Wow, that's information. I need to be present to that. I don't yeah. just need to be positive. And then based on being present to that and really not suppressing it, but just being present to it without immediately reacting, then you could be like, okay, what is the situation here? Is this a situation where this might be my ego or something that's a little bit hurt? Or is this a situation of injustice that's happening that I can, I can say, okay, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's different than spitting out, like you said, the word that you use was spinning out, mm-hmm. right? It's being able to be present to yourself and, and then also making choices about where you want to intervene and what needs to be done. And it doesn't mean not acting. 
just means Correct. not reacting. Right. And it's also learning. I mean, what I'm the kind of what I'm observing is there's okay. Raise awareness of, okay, what are you actually feeling? You can investigate. Why are you feeling that? What's motivating that way? Yeah. And then do practices that help you observe the process and then have choice. And I don't know if you were able to see the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. No, I really want to see it. Oh, it's so <laughs> good. Think about it. Yeah. And she, she talks about how, I mean, and I've heard this in other places too, but how important it is to use anger as fuel, but yeah. to not, to not come from that because it's, it's not as much of a, a grounded or, um, powerful place like people when you're coming at people with anger they can't hear you yeah. and so when she she did so much for causing legislation for equal for women's rights for equality for mm-hmm. men and women and and had she done that with like a, an edge or a tone of like you stupid idiots it wouldn't have happened yeah. like and she's like I'm teaching kindergarten you know like that's how she she explained it and yeah. like I got so much from that when I heard her talk about that so I don't know that's hard though especially yeah. if you have not had permission to like really witness and feel yeah what's there for you around right. racism sexism ageism able-bodiedism right. all Absolutely. of those things yeah. so yeah yeah, no, it's, um, I think that for me, it's just, it's been really important to just sort of not push things down and be present to them and then also be like, okay, well, this is what I can do in this moment mm-hmm. and this is what I can't and mm-hmm. not getting myself into a situation where I'm self-destructing, seeing the long game in a, in a particular situation, like, okay, this is, this is the situation right now. Here's what I can do. And I'm working towards for me, very concretely, working towards towards a goal that will enable me to do a much greater level of work. I feel like my work is now just beginning in a lot of ways, and it's exciting. And I don't think that I would have been able to get through it if it wasn't for these kinds of embodied practices that help me to be present. Now I'm in the process of connecting the kinds of work that I do with the topics that I study, the big topics about global capitalism, oppression, inequality, class, gender, race, all of these things that we're, we've been talking about, they're not disconnected from our embodied experiences, our everyday relationships. Yeah. Mm, I'm so glad you're going to be at the table <laughs> <laughs> discussing and teaching those things. That's awesome. The intention of this this project, this podcast is to illuminate, to show the process of owning your voice, of fully being yourself and to show that it's different for everybody. And that is good and right and perfect and encourage us to stop comparing ourselves and to find guidance and inspiration from all the different examples of people who have found their voice and who are living their truth and doing it in a way that is aligned with their soul's work that's also of service to others. Mm-hmm. And you're doing that. And I'm so excited to be talking with you. And I'm also, this is an opportunity for people to see you in perhaps a way that they normally don't get to see you or to hear you in a way they normally don't get to hear you. Like, what has it taken for you to get here and to be who you are and do the work that you're doing? And, mm-hmm. and so, how far back do you want to go? Is my question. Um, in terms of your story, in terms of my story, um, 
like where'd you yeah I'm curious like where'd you grow up and what's your family dynamic and how many siblings do you have and right what was kind of the tone in your house and yeah did they encourage you to speak your voice and right yeah or did they oppress it and then you were like hell no and then reclaim it and then like or was it kind of a both hand you know like Yeah. yeah yeah okay so I guess um I'll just start from from the the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so my my family originally comes from India. My parents came here in 1969, and I was born in New Jersey. They were living in Philadelphia, and I was born in New Jersey in 1974. You know, I come from an immigrant background already. A a world in which there are different kinds of culture, different kinds of values. I grew up in the mix of a lot of borders. And so that's been both a gift and also a source of some struggle, right? I moved around a lot as I was growing up. So I lived mostly on the, on the East Coast, but both in the Northeast and the South, the Deep South. <laughs> so at a certain period of my life, I was... You know, What's the deep south? Where were you living? I was living in Georgia in a small Ooh. textiles town in Georgia. My dad was working in, in textiles, actually. What's interesting is the U.S. South and the western part of India have a lot in common. Just thinking historically, they were b- both places where cotton was grown and all sorts of problematic relations, obviously, through the colonial economy and the racial economy in the United States. So it was kind of an interesting thing. My dad came to the U.S. and he he studied textiles and then he got a job in this mill town in Georgia, LaGrange, Georgia, where there were no other people who looked like me. (laughs) There was maybe one other family who emerged at a certain point, but I, I grew up in a place where there were no other, very few other, you know, any Indians. And so, so that was, that was quite an experience. I've always sort of felt like an an outsider, I guess you could say, both in the United States being from my own background, but then also within the Indian American community, I just grew up never quite fitting in and always feeling really much more comfortable at the border of lots of different identities, cultures, values, and really cobbling those things up together for myself. So my parents came, you know, came to the U.S. and then they proceeded to have a life that was not what the ideal Indian family was supposed to be like. You know, there are a set of rules that started to emerge about what this model Asians as a model minority, really what they're like. They have good, stable families. They make good money. They're successful. So there were all of these expectations of me but also ways in which our family didn't quite fit the mold. My parents are divorced. There were a lot of difficulties in their relationship, plus the pressures of moving to a new country. My dad first got here. He had to put himself through school. You know, he was washing dishes, driving taxis, doing you name it. It was really hard. And then they had difficulties in their relationship. And then a big crisis happened where my dad and my mom had all of these difficulties. And then my dad and my mom's sister ended up getting together. So 
<laughs> wow. I that can was, imagine. Yeah, that was the, a, the, a lot of drama. There was conflict around that. There was a lot of drama there. Um, yeah. And so these things are always, these things are always really complex. It, there's no single good guy, bad guy, et cetera. And I don't, I'm not going to get into the whole story around, around that, but it was something that really affected me. I found myself split in different directions across my family members, being in the middle, feeling like I had to please lots of different people, feeling taking on responsibility for a lot of things. And I feel like that's something that I've carried with me a lot. So we had this not ideal Indian family. <laughs> and you were not a model immigrant. Not a model, not a model minority. <laughs> there you um, go. I really was not a model minority. We had, you know, the other aspect of being a model minority is you make lots of money. You know, you're super successful and you make lots of money. Those things didn't always work out for my family. You know, my mom ended up, she worked in a, she worked at the hospital as a medical technologist and she had some stability. My dad, it was just, he kind of moved from job to job. There were some financial difficulties. We were never really quite stable. There were moments where money was, was difficult. Did you have so, siblings? I, I ended up having, you know, I have one sibling from my dad and my, and my stepmom and I adore him. I love him. <laughs> my little brother, there's eight years difference between us. And so it's kind of like, it was almost like a, you know, parental relationship that I, that I had with him. So yeah, so kind of not the model, not the model minority in a lot of, in a lot of different ways. Um, and that had its challenges, but also I think I'm really grateful for not fitting into a particular mold in any way. Like I didn't, I didn't, I had certain expectations. I mean, my family always had expectations from me and of me. And that's, I think that's, you know, a good thing and also kind of a privilege, right? That people expected me to do well, but also I, I knew that things don't always turn out as planned and, and that there are alternative ways of being. So I would say my what dad- What do you mean alternative ways of being? Um, that there isn't a single way to be in the world. There isn't a single way to be, to contribute, mm -hmm. to be quote unquote successful. Right. You know? That being um, successful can look multiple different ways. Can look different. Yeah. And, and, you, and that's having so a family. Great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Have the way that family looks, right? I mean- just at a very basic level, it looked really different in my family. And there was some difficulties around that. And I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm a queer woman. I'm married to another woman, another, you know, woman of color and not of my ethnic background. And so, you know, <laughs> I don't fit any kind of mold within the, within the family structure of an Indian family that's heterosexual and kind of fits all of these ideas about family values. I have my family values. And then they, and they look different. Yeah. They don't look like a particular mold. And, right. and I think that those molds can be really oppressive. So yeah, I never really quite fit in. And I think that was a good thing. I've, it can be I've, really liberating. Because mm -hmm. then you're mm -hmm. like, these rules don't apply to me. I yeah. gotta make my own. <laughs> I gotta make my own rules. Yeah. yeah and it wow. doesn't mean that people don't try to put those rules on you. And right. then you kind of have to push up, push up against, uh, against that, you know, um, for me, it was when I, I decided that I was going to be with a person that I love, not with a particular gender or ethnic 
a person of a particular gender and ethnic background. I was going to be with my, with the person who was going to be the person I could grow with, who I was on a journey with in my life. Right. And Mm -hmm. that is not going to come in, in a single body that other people tell me it should come in. Right. right? How old were you when you came out about all of that? Um, or was it a process? I was in my twenties. I was in my twenties. I mean, I think that for me, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I don't fit into, I, I, I always sort of tell myself, I don't quite fit into a single mold. So I didn't quite, I don't also quite fit into the typical lesbian narrative either. You know, you grew up thinking having the sense that you are a lesbian and then you started to come like that whole narrative also doesn't work for me. Um, I, I grew up thinking that I was going to be a regular, it sounds crazy now, just like a regular person married to a man. You know, I always thought maybe I would marry somebody who was not Indian, but ideally I would marry somebody in my own, you know, from my own cultural background. Like I had all these ideas. And then for most of my life, I dated men, but I always was attracted to women. I always had this, I had an attraction to women. I always had very close relationships with women and yeah. And I was physically attracted to them as well, but it does, it wasn't an option really for me at a certain point I got married. So I lived in Brazil. This is fast forwarding after, mm-hmm. gra- after graduating from college. And where'd you go to college? I went to college in New York city, Barnard okay. college, Columbia university. And I, as I, as I said, I, I grew up sort of being out of place a lot. So I had a lot of friends who were exchange students because they were out of place too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up making friends from all over the world. And, and then I ended up living in Brazil for a few years. And I married a Brazilian man and a lovely person and also not the person that I was, that was right for me to spend the rest of my life with. Mm-hmm. And so when that relationship ended, I realized, okay, I was trying to make something work and I was trying to make it on my own terms. I I married somebody who was from this other world who I really appreciated, et cetera, but wasn't, didn't really get all of me. And I wasn't entirely fulfilled in that relationship. And when that ended, it was a very big deal in my family and for myself, but it just broke open the floodgates for what was possible. And then I was like, you know, I've been attracted to women for a really long time. And so that's a possibility. And so then my partner came into my life when I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley. I ended up five years after I finished my undergrad, I started my PhD, my master's and my PhD at UC Berkeley. And I, I met the love of my life and it was just so clear to me. It, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't, it was, this is, a, it's a very strange thing because I feel like there's this whole narrative around becoming okay with being queer. I, I honestly, I can be, I'm really honest about this. I really did not have a problem with it mm-hmm. for myself. Everybody else had a big problem with it, right? <laughs> but I was just like, I am happier than I've ever been in my life. I have every, like I can connect on so many different levels with this person. Yeah. We connected intellectually. We were both doing our PhDs together. We connected sexually. We connected spiritually. She's also 
became interested in meditation. And so I'm like, hit the jackpot. Yeah. I have no problems. Isn't this great? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You don't think this is great? <laughs> <laughs> you don't think that uh, finally I'm happy and yeah. okay, now I have to just back up a little bit and get everybody else on board with why this is a great thing for me and how this is a great thing for the world. And so then there was that coming out in that way, but I, I honestly didn't feel it. Like for me, it was, I was just so grateful to find the love of my life and somebody who I could grow with, Yeah, you know, on, on so many different levels. And we've been together for 15 years now. Wow. But the coming out then became about managing everybody else's reactions. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I I love it. I love it. Yeah. I think part of it was also that their, my family's anxiety about not being the perfect model minority also. And what did it mean that I was now a lesbian? Did they fail? You know, they had all these concerns. They were also concerned about my well-being. They have they had ideas about what it meant. Did it mean that I was disturbed in some kind of way? Right. And I think that it came from a place of care also and worry. And also, wow, did we really mess up? <laughs> all of those things. So it was about being compassionate to them and really being patient. And it wasn't easy. It really wasn't easy for a while. But then now they they love my partner and i feel like i have a real family obviously every family still has problems but i'm authentically myself with my family which is which is great and they and they get it and they're they're with me now and you just you don't have to like check parts of yourself out <laughs> you can like show up fully that's yeah, that exactly. is amazing and such a gift Exactly. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, you had asked me, how did I grow up in that way? I think that, you know, my, my family was always concerned about, am I going to be okay? Am I going to, you know, wanting me to live the life that is expected, but they also didn't live their own traditional life. And so they, at certain points they were like, okay, you can, if you want to do this weird thing, like become an academic, they didn't quite understand that either. You know, the, the sort of most, most people will go the narrow path of becoming a recognizable professional, like a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, and you go and you do this and you make money and et cetera. And I was much more interested in understanding the world and changing the world. And so I had done all kinds of other work after graduate school. Like I moved to Brazil and was living in a village for a while. And then I was in New York and was working with low-income communities and, NG, and you know, nonprofits working um, on social justice issues in New York City. And then I went to graduate school. It wasn't a normal path for my, for my family. But at a certain point, they were like, okay, if you're good, you know, if, you're, if, you, can, if you can survive, you know, you can make the money that you need to make in order to survive and you're moving forward, then okay. You know, we're happy. Go for yeah, it. We're happy. Yeah. So my dad, um, especially he passed away, you know, about a year and a half ago was always a real champion to me. You can do anything that you put your mind to. I always had that in my heart, but also had lots of other messages from other people that conflicted with that. You know, when my mom got remarried, my stepdad was very much not like that. And there was 
a lot of sexism, abuse in that family. And so there was a clash between some, between the different messages that I was, that I was getting for sure. Women can't do certain things and, oh, also an experience of sexual molestation. I mean, it didn't go as far as it could have. I was able to tell people in my life and have it be prevented, but a lot of messages that I internalized that this kind of attention toward me as a child was something that was my fault. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I grew up with a mix of, of messages, you know, some that were empowering and some that weren't. And I think it's all a part of me and are all a part of my struggle to be fully expressed, to be myself and to serve in the world the way that I know I want to and that I have the capacity to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's mm-hmm. really powerful. Mm-hmm. You are doing uh, like social justice work in India, right? Mm. So my research has been on social justice issues in India. Mainly I've been looking at urban development projects Mm -hmm. uh, in Mumbai and looking at the ways in which they're impacting the urban poor, the majority of the population. And so looking at processes of displacement and social mobilization, different social movements and groups that are struggling for more equitable rights to the city. So is it kind of like gentrification? Yeah, that's one way to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. That's the that's the terminology and the set of processes that that work in the United States. Mm-hmm. And people people use those use that framework for the for India too. But it's a little bit different because in India, you know, you have a lot of poverty. Obviously, you have poverty everywhere in the world. It's not just a problem of over there. We have we have poverty here too. But the way that it looks over there is that there's a there's a larger scale. Of poverty because of the processes of colonialization, you know, colonialism and colonization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the scale at which poverty has has manifested in, in in India has has been really great. And so you have tons of people who have been displaced from their livelihoods in rural areas, a primarily agricultural country, moving into cities. And then as cities become this area of, you know, hey, we can make lots of money out of real estate, commercial real estate, infrastructure, et cetera. Oh, now here are all of these folks that have settled this land, right? They may not have title to the land. They don't have actual property rights, but they're making a living and they're kind of getting by. Now we can just remove them right? This is what the people in power have been doing. And so it's, um, it's, in some ways, it's a much more directly violent process. People will go and bulldoze homes. And it's a, it's a form of direct dispossession and displacement for, you know, in order to enable these elite projects that benefit the Indian elite and transnational capital. And so I was researching these processes, and I wasn't necessarily engaged in the movements myself as a, you know, as an activist, I had a period of time where I was much more involved in implementation and the furthering of certain kinds of projects, right? But as an academic, I've been much more trying to understand how these processes work and looking at questions of, you know, how capitalism works, how transnational capitalism works, how um, within a particular context of a social movement, how sometimes questions of gender and identity in the in the Indian context, you know, either caste or 
religious identity, if you're of a particular caste or you're of a particular kind of religious um, minority, how that can mean your experience of displacement, of dispossession, of violence, state violence, much like we sort of see in the United States, right? The kind of incarceration of African-American populations and the, the, the specific gendered ramifications, right? Of what it means to be poor in a, in a community, right? Similar kinds of processes in India, looking at gender, looking at identity and the ways in which that impacts people people's experience, how certain, certain communities can, can be much more severely experiencing the violence of the state without access to any kind of other resources that other groups might be able to have access to. But then also how these ideas of who belongs, who's worthy, who should be doing what kinds of work, right? Mm-hmm. How that can be internalized mm-hmm. by people themselves and the logics of a certain kind of market capitalism can also be internalized by groups themselves. And so my work was really trying to understand all of that complexity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we want to uh, idealize social movements, people's movements. And I think that it's important to support people's movements. And part of the way that one supports them is to also understand how we, can, how we are often reproducing the patterns of oppression that we're working against. Yep. In our own lives. In our own lives, in our relationship to others, you know, so a way in which, you know, sometimes social movements could be exclusionary, right? Within the Indian context across, across different um, ethno religious backgrounds or castes, et cetera, whether, you know, certain exploitation of women within these processes Mm -hmm. and how there's a back and forth process, how that can also mean new articulations of social movements, right? Led by women in new ways, right? Mm -hmm. And then also how then those new movements can, can surface with new internalized oppressions coming to the surface. I think it's, it's, it's never a clear cut done process of social movements. Hey, we're all okay. Now we have to fight that oppressor out there. It's a constant process of negotiation, both externally and you know, internally. Yeah. It's, I think I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of times people, especially coming from kind of a yogic or a yoga practice or personal development practice are like, I got to get myself right Right. before I can then step out and help others. And it's like, no, we do it in tandem. Right. It (laughs) has to be at the same time. Right. And mistakes are inevitable. Yeah. And that is actually part of the process. And so- Wow, that's so cool to, that you have this kind of uh, this macroscopic perspective of the <laughs> complexity of these systems. Yeah. And I love that you also have the embodiment practice of your own personal commitment. I'm curious, from your perspective right now at this moment, I know it's mm-hmm. dynamic, in terms of balancing the personal change with the social change, what do you see either maybe in your life or in your student's life, especially, I mean, you're living in Arizona. That's got to be unique too. <laughs> like the point, the biggest point to like focus on, because nothing is ever fixed or you don't ever arrive at perfection. Right. There's always the next layer of integrity, of alignment, of truth, of service, of wholeness. But in terms of like balancing this macroscopic perspective of what's happening, Mm-hmm. the oppression and injustice on so many levels. 
as well with the internal practice, what do you think is a good thing to focus on? I mean, I think that uh, a good friend of mine always tells me, you know, do what's in front of you, right? And do what you're here to do. You know, I feel like I, I have a particular set of skills. I have a particular offering. And sometimes I feel like that offering is not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I should be out there in the, in the trenches. And I am out there in the trenches in my, in my own way. You know, with my research, you had asked me, um, you know, what I, do I work in social justice? And, and, you know, I share my research with the social movements and, and activists actually sought me out to reflect with them and, and you know, it sharing my writing, et cetera. And being okay with doing exactly what I'm here to do, what I have the skills to do, what I have to offer, really. And I'm not always very good at it. I always feel like I'm not enough. <laughs> That's part of my internalized depression. I'm not doing enough. I could be doing more. And I think that just coming back to I am enough and here's what's in front of me. Here's an opportunity that is an opportunity that's presented to me, right? Mm-hmm. And only me. And I have the, I have a very unique set of skills that I can offer in this moment. There's this one story when we were doing the, the centering exercise, that was really good because I was thinking about all of these questions. I was like, what are my key moments? There's so many key moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so what came to me was when the Charlottesville insanity happened last summer mm-hmm. around white supremacy and all of the ugliness really that's always been in our in our society coming to the surface. Yeah. It was the beginning of the semester. It was right before classes had started and I was teaching two courses. One was focused on gender, gender and geography, and the other was focused on international development. And I was like, oh my God, these are very relevant issues to to what's happening today. How am I going to have the, this conversation in a classroom in Arizona, you know? Yeah. And um, felt very strongly, this is what was in front of me and I need to do this. And I didn't know how, and I was, we were all traumatized by it. I mean, we've been traumatized for a long time and the election of Trump and one after another, things really coming to the surface and feeling overwhelmed. And as a person in education, I feel an enormous amount of responsibility to make change in this arena that's in front of me. These are students, they need to have a different way of thinking Mm -hmm. and they need to have a different way of being in the world. Within my research I've talked about, but then also within my teaching, that's what's in front of me. I have to do this. And so at that moment, I had never connected these worlds of my own practice of meditation, embodiment, mindfulness, etc. however you want to call it. I hate that word mindfulness. I want to come up with another way. Of- <laughs> it is such a buzzword now, right? It is such a buzzword. And so yeah. become so devoid of the real yeah. critical kind of edge that it actually has, I think, mm-hmm. that these practices actually have. They're about transformation and it's not always like happy, happy, joy, joy, mm-hmm. you know, uh, about feeling good all the time. And so what I decided was, okay, it was 
time for me to talk about white supremacy in the United States and in the world. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about it. And I, and I always, you know, it, it, it um, produces a lot of stress inside of me in, you know, coming into the classroom and the body that I occupy and talking about these things, talking about sexism, racism, talking about imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I come, you know, a lot of the classes that I teach are international. So there are a whole set of ideas about the third world, right? And how that, how it needs to be saved and how it's degenerate, et cetera, right? So thinking about that also as a form of white supremacy and connecting it to police brutality in LA, et cetera, right? So how am I going to do this without collapsing under the weight of it? And yeah feeling the strain of the judgment that's coming because I'm in the, I'm in the body that I'm in and therefore I'm not objective or therefore I'm not really smart enough or maybe that I'm too emotional or that I'm whatever. And it was the moment that I decided to really incorporate mindfulness in my teaching. So I decided a, that I was going to ban technology in my classroom (laughs) no phones or computers, not even for notes, uh, allowed. So I put that rule in because I think that we're so, the generation today, especially has grown up with this technology, cannot focus for a second, really. And um, so that was the first thing I did. And the second thing that I did was make a decision to start every class with an embodiment exercise an embodied mindfulness exercise. It was a you know a couple days before class. I did all this research. How do people do this? And I decided to implement it. And did I feel completely vulnerable and exposed? <laughs> yes. But I felt like it was the only way that A, I was going to get centered in my own body, and B, I could ensure that they, the students, were also centered in their own body so that we could talk about white supremacy, right? And that was how I started. And that's how the rest of the semester went. (laughs) And that's how the rest of my educational um, pedagogy, how my pedagogical practices are really now grounded in this. The classroom needs to be a space where we can get into these difficult topics. And we have to do this from a place of being embodied, being connected, being present. To what, to what we're experiencing in this moment. And that's as much for me as it is for the students. For sure. Because if and you're I, not safe, mm-hmm. in, or not safe mm-hmm. isn't the right word, if you're not as centered as possible right, mm-hmm. and supported in this conversation, they won't be either. Yeah. So yeah. they get a taste of that. It's like people can't, people feel what you feel. You yeah. know, like when you're inspired, they feel it. When you're depressed, they feel it. Like, yeah. And so for you, that's so wise of you to honor that, especially with the colossal magnitude and heaviness of white mm-hmm. supremacy mm-hmm. that is very intentionally intended for it to be so uncomfortable. You don't want to face it. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. want to look at it. So you don't want to look at it. Yeah. So much courage and so smart of you. Well, thank create, you. Start with like what you need and then give that to your students. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's just, it's the, it's the only way to have difficult conversations without people getting in. And, and it's not like there aren't students that were probably rolling their eyes, but they do it. I think that they do it. More and more students started to give it a try. 
And then maybe it is grounding in them in a way that they may not even recognize and mm -hmm. me too. And, and it doesn't solve everything in a, in the span of a single semester, mm -hmm. but it's a start to be able to have a different kind of conversation coming from a different kind of place that isn't attack defense, just stay really in your ground of where you think you are right, you know, mm -hmm. um, and to just actually be open to allow for a space of opening towards each other mm -hmm. by having a space of opening within yourself mm -hmm. that you can be present to what's arising within yourself. You know, I had students that told me it really made a difference for them. And I felt the difference in the classroom, the entire energy of the classroom, the ability to, to focus, the ability to stay with a conversation that's difficult. And for me to be able to respond and not, sometimes, you know, it's hard when somebody throws something at you and something racist or sexist or something that feels just makes so you violent. feel personally personally yeah. vulnerable also that taps into your own issues right there are these social issues and then there's our own formation mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm not enough is my little what i grew up with as a mantra not, i'm not doing enough i didn't do enough so there's all of these interconnected personal and social forces that we embody right mm -hmm. and yeah that that practice kind of helping me to okay yeah, this is in front of me. This person just said something difficult. How, how, how am I going to respond? How is this classroom going to respond? You know, learning that I'm not in it all by myself, that there are others in the classroom that can also participate in this process and trying to, yeah, create a space of, of opening and possibility. Yeah. And it, I think what's, so, what's challenging about that. And I have this, <laughs> many opportunities to practice this in my own life, yeah. <laughs> right? Because is holding the humanity in the person mm -hmm. who seems like the enemy or mm -hmm. who seems, who is attacking you in that right. moment. But right. to see, to look past what's actually coming at you, mm -hmm. see the humanity in them mm -hmm. and speak to that part, whew, that can be challenging, especially when they go for like your deepest wound. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why we need the embodiment, the physical yeah. practices to yeah. keep us grounded. Yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm really getting more and more excited now to be able to connect these worlds because, and, and this is where we met when mm -hmm. I first started this journey of really connecting the internal transformation embodiment with the external transformation. And yeah, I've started uh, this, this new research project on embodied mindfulness and social, and social justice. Mm -hmm. This last semester, I presented some of that work at a conference, which was a, a big deal for me. It was a big deal for me to finally be able to voice it in this academic world, you know, that is, like I said, so neck up, so critical. And so, especially within the radical left academia, very suspicious of what may be an a what may be considered an apolitical kind of spirituality or self-care practice mindfulness practice right that's not really looking at you know the big drivers of social inequality capitalism racism etc 
and that what is this kind of kumbaya woo-woo thing that isn't really making a difference in the world to actually come into that space, bringing these, these tools, right. And then vice versa, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, has been a really scary thing for me and also such an exciting new world I'm stepping into. So this, this April, I, I presented on this topic for the first time at a major conference and I was completely terrified to go into the room and it was a big room full of, full of kind of um, well-known, well-respected academics. And I, I was, I was completely surprised at how many people came up to me afterwards and was like, they were like, thank you for talking about this. I actually have a meditation practice wow. or, you know, mm-hmm. one, one really amazing scholar activist who I really respect actually told me that she loved my paper and that she appreciated how, how brave I was to do that. And yeah. I was, I was floored and, because I think she's amazing. And so it was just a wonderful experience to have. And it's something that I've kind of suppressed for a long time, because when I've brought it up in the past within academia, it's definitely been shut down, really right in the beginning of graduate school. It was sort of like, no, that's not very rigorous. That's not critical. Um, So it's a really, it's a really exciting time for me to actually get to now bring these worlds together. And I think, um, yeah, that's, that's what I have in my, what's directly in front of me to offer. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other moments that were, yeah. that you, where you can viscerally feel <laughs> the fear and you speak up anyway, or you find a way through it or you don't too. And you learn from that as well. Yeah. 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 I think, um, you know, I think probably coming out to my family was a big one, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, really, uh, my wedding I had, I, I got married in 2008. I don't know if you recall, it's not already been 10 years now. It was when, um, marriage was legalized in California, gay marriage was legalized. And then it was up against this vote, Proposition 8. Yep. And um, that really kind of was going to make it illegal again. And in that period of time, you know, my partner and I decided to get married. She proposed to me at Dyke March. <laughs> it was great. She proposed to me, not with, in your normal way, with a ring. She proposed to me with a cake. And, <laughs> and we had a debate at Dyke March about gay marriage. And then she presented me with a, with a cake. It was really cute and, and, and sweet and a real kind of community affair that, um, that us getting married was about this moment of transformation. And we were also talking about how problematic ma- marriage is, right? It's, it's, are we, are we fitting into a particular kind of mold that's set up by heterosexist capitalist patriarchy, yep. patriarchy, right? Yep. So we, we so you guys were debating, we were debating. It was, it was this really funny thing. There's a video of it. We were at Dyke March and, you know, she had sort of planned this out that she was going to propose to me. And she had two of our friends talk, talk about gay marriage and should we be supporting gay marriage? Is this our struggle? And one person sort of saying, 
well, yes, I think it is something that we should struggle for because of all of the concrete rights that are, that are denied to queer families, adoptive rights or healthcare or all of these more concrete types of types of rights as opposed to sort of more lofty ideas about what marriage means, et cetera. It was a much more kind of an instrumental thing. Like this is, this is going to enable us to have the same capacity to live as heterosexual couples, as heterosexual families. Another person who said, this is not really a struggle that radical queers should be engaging in, that there, there's a way in which it's going to put us into a mold of heterosexual normativity. And this shouldn't be our struggle. There's a lot more, there's a lot more out there that we need to be focused on. We need to be focused on, if we're interested in immigration, for example, that we shouldn't have to get married in order to have rights, or that marriage shouldn't be the underlying modality through which one can be accepted and one could have what one needs in society. So I understood that point too. And for me, coming from the the background that I come from, I'm a South Asian American, and there's a particular, there's a particular meaning that that marriage has that is heterosexist, patriarchal, all of these things, but also is a way in which family is understood. And that for me, it was like getting married as a queer person, as a person that I am. I am changing the institution of marriage, right? It's not, there may be things that I have to push against in terms of normalizing or putting me into a particular kind of box or having me, yeah, having, having a certain set of expectations, fulfilling a certain set of expectations. Obviously, that's a, that's, that's a danger, but also that an institution doesn't remain the same once it's a different group of people that are engaged in it. So that was my response to it. My partner set up this debate of three of us taking different, different, it was a totally academic (laughs) kind of of a proposal. And then she says, well, you know, if that's the case, then will you marry me? And she brought out this cake with, that said something, will you marry me? And so it was like a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of women in, in, um, and Dolores Park kind of eating our cake. And yeah. um, that was our proposal. And yeah, and then we, and then we got married. You know, we had to kind of have this big, big, we planned a really big Indian wedding <laughs> in, in Guerneville, uh, California. And it was, it was a process of really, for us, you know, kind of the whole process of planning the wedding was a process of, of engaging with our families and having them understand that we are a family. And the marriage process really transformed them and their understanding of us. I think that that moment of, it wasn't just a single moment, but it was, a, it was a, over five months that culminated in our wedding. And you know, my, my dad didn't show up at that time. It was just my mom and both of my partner's parents showed up, but they were kind of reluctant they're religious and they felt like it was kind of against their religion. And so we really had to stand our ground with, with that and navigate heterosexism and then also these kind of cultural norms and then also kind of navigate this way in which white American society can just 
sort of dismiss homophobia as something that communities of color, you know, like, oh, you come from an Indian background, therefore your parents must not be very accepting. Well, no, it's not just people of an Indian background or of an immigrant background or, you know, people of color, right? Heterosexism is everywhere and homophobia is everywhere. And, you know, it's just, this is a process that we all have to have to go through. And so it felt like, um, yeah, it felt like navigating all of these different borders and terrains and the marriage process and the wedding itself became a way that we asserted all of who we were wow. to all of our community. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty powerful to be able to be able to do that. So I guess that may be. That's a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> and it's, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, life makes sense once you look back and you connect mm-hmm. the dots. Yeah. But looking forward, it doesn't make sense. But it right, right. look back, right? Something right. to expect. And so, you know, just hearing what I have heard about your story, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, that's yeah. your superpower is mm-hmm. navigating the borders, right? Yeah. And in doing that, what I, I'm so thankful for in your journey and your courage to honor your truth and authenticity and living life by in a way that really honors you Mm -hmm. that comes up against those borders. It helps the people that are Mm -hmm. (laughs) heteronormative be like, I'm oppressed by this too. And I didn't think to notice it or realize it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And when you see the different expressions and kind of like a renegotiating of what partnership looks like, of Mm -hmm. what family is, of Mm -hmm. what belonging is. My gosh, Mm -hmm. as a cisgender, heteronormative white chick, Mm -hmm. I'm like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) things are oppressing me in ways I had no idea if I hadn't have gotten out of that. So that's true. Thank you for your courage (laughs) in doing that. Yeah, it really does make the world a better place. It's like a ripple. (sighs) So, um, last few questions here. Okay. What are you most proud of? Please brag about yourself and your life. And this is an, in a narcissistic way. It's in an empowering and owning your power and beauty and intelligence yeah. in a way that empowers others to do the same. Yeah. I guess the thing that has come up for me recently and I've had friends tell me this and now it's actually, I'm actually downloading that, okay, this is something that I've got that's useful and that I can be proud of. Um, I'm really persistent. <laughs> I, I think that pretty much everything that I've done has taken a long time and a lot of, you know, sometimes head banging. <laughs> a lot of grit. Consistency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I, you know, it's not always been fun or pretty, but I've really stuck with things. I've really I think just getting the PhD and getting tenure as a professor has has been an exercise of endurance. It's been an endurance game. And being in this relationship, you know, with my with my partner and all of the different 
manifestations that that's had in relation to each other in relation to our families has been, you know, we've been together for 15 years now and with all of its ups and downs has been part of that being persistent, really sticking with it and moving through all of those vicissitudes. I think that's, that's probably something that I'm realizing, okay, I stick to things and that's useful. <laughs> Do you have a prayer or a wish for our country, the world, the planet? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think just, this is going to sound funny probably, um, realizing that we're going to be dead soon, <laughs> really, that we're really going to be dead soon. Um, and coming from that place of recognizing that we're here for a temporary moment of time, you know, that, that what we're, what we're doing is the, the stakes are a lot bigger, right? When you, when you come at, when you come at that, the stakes, um, you know, how, how you're engaging in the world, all of your personal struggles, recognizing that working out all of the oppressions inside of you, mm-hmm. even if you look like you've got it all together and society kind of gives you, bestows upon you a set of privileges because of your race, gender, class, nationality, etc. right? That you still have things that you're working on inside and in relation to the people around you. And that doing that work must be connected to changing the world and all of the violences and oppressions that are unfolding in the world. Mm-hmm. that you can't really have one without the other mm-hmm. and that recognizing that we're really going to be dead soon that <laughs> this is the most important work that we could be doing and it doesn't have to look like a big revolution right right it could right. just be something very simple of okay i'm going to change this narrative within myself or mm-hmm. okay i'm going to i'm going to in my work situation, I see something really effed up that's happening. I'm going to speak up for it and connecting what's going on inside in your everyday relations and with, you know, the broader structures of inequality, oppression, patriarchy, racism, right? All of those, all of those aspects. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your story, your life, for your commitment, for your perseverance for your grit, for navigating the borders between all of these different groups and identities. Thank you for inviting me. This has been really fun and a great way to start this new year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this new year. It's a new year for me, even though it's not a new year for anyone else because I've, I've just gone through this 10-year process yeah. and I'm like, okay, what are the possibilities now? And to reflect on where I've come from is so helpful. Brava. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Again, that was Dr. Sapna Doshi, professor at the School of Geography and Development at the University of Arizona. This week, I encourage you to notice the places where you feel you can be most yourself and where you feel you have to filter or leave certain parts of yourself behind. Notice what breaks your heart and consider that this is what your soul is calling you to do. I encourage you to explore opportunities for meditation and conscious movement practices and to take the next big or small step to creating the change that you want for yourself or your community or both. Your voice matters.
you have a story to share or an experience that helped you find your voice, I'd love to hear your story. Go to she'sheard.com to keep in touch and learn of more opportunities to connect. Tune into the next episode. More inspiration, wisdom, and insight is on the way. Until next time, standing in our collective liberation, be well.